It's a lot happening in the world these days and uh, lots, lots and lots and lots of stuff to pray for. But today we're going to first and foremost pray for unreached people group of the day coming from India. They are the Budai and they live in um, just scattered across regions of India and Pakistan. And so there are about 586,000 of these people, 0% Christians, 0% evangelical. Uh, main religion being Islam. And we want to pray for their salvation. We want to pray for the gospel message to reach these people. And so that's what we will do. We're praying for the Bodai of India. Uh, currently, there are wildfires. If you were familiar with pre-COVID times, I know it sounds like eternally long ago, but uh, in the beginning of the year 2020, we began with what was at the time considered the most tragic event on the calendar so far, the Australian wildfires. And currently, we are dealing with... Uh, West Coast wildfires in the United States, and if you're not familiar, Oregon, Oregon, sorry, uh, Oregon, Nevada, what is it, a bunch of those states, uh, California are getting hit hard since mid-August with um, these devastating fires that are sort of rampaging through. If now, I think they're recorded at like thousands of acres of land across the western coast of the United States. It's causing a lot of pollution that's leaking into British Columbia, which is causing, of course, uh, air pollution. And uh, lots of people losing their homes. Um, I think the death count is at around 10 or 11, uh, with dozens and dozens of people missing. Uh, people obviously are losing a lot at the moment. And so we want to just pray for those people. Uh, and it's, it's a really unfortunate situation. And it's hard to get it under control. So uh, with that in mind, we're going to pray for Western United States and the wildfires that are damaging lives and homes uh, in that region. Uh, let's pray together and uh, we'll start. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for this day as you gather us uh, around your word, as we table together to learn. Lord, there are hearts here and minds here who are eager to be fed. Help us, O oh Lord, to be satisfied. God, I know that at times uh, there is unclarity or just a sense of confusion sometimes when we read the word. But Lord, I pray that those things would be made clear through the Holy Spirit. And I pray that our lives would be bettered by it. God, we pray for the Badai of India. We pray for these people, over 500,000 of them, about half a million. We pray, O oh Lord, for their salvation. We pray that the gospel message of Jesus Christ reach them through means that only you know and have prepared. God, we just ask for churches and missionaries and Christians alike within and outside of India to preach the gospel to these people. God, we also pray for the fires that are hitting Western United States and are unfortunately causing a lot of damage um, to homes and lives in that area. People losing uh, property, people losing lives, um, dozens of people missing. We want to pray, Lord, um, for recovery and we want to pray for resolution and uh, hopefully that situation to get under control. God, we honor you this day. We pray all this in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so we are in our second sermon on Peter. Last week we looked at the calling of Peter, as Peter is called, to become a fisher of men. Let me try to set this story up for you. So let me give you some context as to what is happening in Matthew 14. Right before it, it gives us a lot, a lot of information. And so I need to draw these things out for you. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 14, we are told of how Herod, the Tetrarch, or King Herod, right, executes John the Baptist, or did execute John the Baptist, at the request, and this, this whole story is just sinister and disgusting, but John the Baptist is at the request of his niece, 
who was obeying her mother. So her mother wanted John the Baptist's head for some reason, and um, and uh, Herod is willing to comply. The scene takes place in a banquet feast that Herod is hosting. Now we can draw all of this from the other Gospels, Mark, Synoptics primarily, so Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Um, and so the scene takes place in a banquet feast that Herod is hosting for noble figures and notable figures in his uh, kingdom, or so-called kingdom. His brother's uh, daughter pleases Herod with her dancing. So the niece is dancing before these men, and he's pleased by it, presumably also drunk, right? Um, and under his drunkenness, he offers her anything she desires. He says, anything you want, I will give you. And she requests the head of John the Baptist, okay? I don't know about you, my niece requested the head of any man, be like, you sicko. But anyways, Herod, on the other hand, says, sure, complies. John is then beheaded, taken from prison, beheaded, and his head is given to this niece on a plate. So on the heels of that story, we have Jesus is given a report of the beheading of John the Baptist and the death of John the Baptist. Now, if you're familiar with specifically the Lucan narrative, uh, that being the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist and Jesus are almost interconnected figures. They're, they're so critical, like the parallel of these two, uh, let's just call them brothers in a sense, uh, brothers of the faith, of course, and Jesus being the Son of God and the Messiah himself. It's such, like, like John the Baptist is so key. It's so critical in the narrative of uh, not only the nativity and ultimately uh, the atoning work of Christ, but the ministry of Christ and all of that, right? He's the one who baptized Christ, of course. He's the one, of course, the voice in the wilderness who cries out and prepares the way of the Lord in the spirit of Isaiah. Um, this is really important, okay? So anyways, his death uh, is reported to Christ and he with and Christ, fittingly, withdraws. He is heartbroken. Um, he withdraws to be alone, most likely in grief and in mourning. So if you ever wonder, well, if God's in control of everything and everything's great and it's good and all for, the God, all for God's glory, why do we mourn and grieve over the death of people? Well, Christ did, right? So there is reason to do so, right? I mean, the template is set for us. Not only that, he prays and withdraws. Now, this annoying crowd that, Jesus, that is following Jesus, I call them annoying because um, they're annoying. <laughs> they just keep following and bothering Jesus. So he wants to mourn and he wants to be alone. Right? Introverts, you can relate here. And you have thousands of people following you. Right? How annoying is this? The annoying crowd follows Jesus. How, they just don't, don't leave him alone. And they keep following him. But Jesus has compassion over these people. And he starts healing the sick. Furthermore, when the disciples recommend to send them away to eat. He says, you know, these people are hungry. They've been following you all day. Let them go home and eat. Jesus tells his disciples, you feed them. <laughs> right? And of course, the amazing miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 follows, right? So all 5,000 plus of these people are fed. Uh, it seems like a ridiculous request, right? To tell his disciples, you feed them. Considering in the midst of the situation, there's only five loaves of bread and two fish. But what Jesus obviously trying to teach his disciples and the readers of the Gospels, like us here today, in a nutshell, is that he will be ultimately the greatest provider of all time. Right? Of not food, of not bread and fish, but of life. Regardless of the reality of the situation. And it will satisfy the pe people's hunger. But it is the disciples' job, the Christians' job, the messengers' job to recognize hunger and distribute the food that they have found in Christ and have been provided for 
by him. Right? So it's a, it's a powerful metaphor there in this feeding of the 5,000. Again, like Peter and his calling, the great catch of fish or men will be provided and guaranteed by Jesus. All we have to do, let down our nets. Obey in faith. Jesus asks for God's blessing before breaking the food, and then he breaks the food. Disciples distribute, and all are satisfied. Abundant leftovers. Leftovers. I love how Christ's ministry is analogized by the eating of his body and drinking of his blood. As we commemorate that and remember that, as Christ told us to, at the Lord's table, right? When we have communion or the Eucharist or whatever you call it, we eat and drink together the body and blood of Christ, symbolically in the Presbyterian Church. Because, of course, it is the redeeming blood and it is the bread of life. This, of course, redeems the act upon which, you know, we were condemned into sin to begin with, right? When we ate upon the forbidden fruit. Eating got it, us into the mess. Eating gets us out, right? So eating something wrong got us into the problem of sin and Jesus redeems it. He provides us with food that is now life-giving. What was once life-taking is now life-giving, right? What a wonderful sort of flip of the narrative, right? People who love to eat. This is the faith for you. Now at this point, Peter has seen miracle after miracle of Jesus, okay? Miracle after miracle. And he is just coming off seeing Jesus feed over 5,000 people, five loaves and two fish. You would think that would be enough to be like, whoa, like, I can put my faith in this guy. And yet, in this narrative that we just read, there is still doubt and fear. Doubt and fear. And when Jesus invites him to walk on the water, what initially begins with a step of faith ends up in a step of fear. Don't you feel like we do the exact same thing in our own lives? Remember how the Israelites came out of Egypt after witnessing 10 plagues unleashed upon the most powerful nation on earth? Freed from slavery. Hundreds of years of slavery. Freed from that. They see a sea that is split for them to walk across. And yet, they walk into wilderness in doubt and in fear. They doubted God's ability to bring them to the promised land. When you read the narrative, there is only abundant reason to believe. And yet, they don't. Right? Does that astound you? It should not, because that is the exact same thing that we do. It is the same exact tendency that exists within every sinner's heart to wander. We live in a consumerist society where our demands are immediate, and the important question is, what have you done for me lately? Right? And we do the same thing with God. Yeah, you saved me from sin. You died on the cross for my sins. But what have you done for me lately? Dare I say that's a pretty pathetic question. We easily dismiss or forget all that God has already done for us. And we continue to demand more and more. For immediate satisfaction. For immediate resolution. From current wants and needs. As if the cross was not We will briefly examine our text today to see what lesson Matthew is trying to teach us 
about this fatal mentality in our walk with God. So let's examine the text. Verse 22, Jesus initiates, just like last week's story, he initiates the entire narrative. He initiates a journey across the sea. He triggers the story, if you will. He sets up the entire scene. He sets the canvas. John 6, which is the parallel in the Gospel of John, verse 15, gives us a little more insight. The crowd was ready to take Jesus by force to appoint him as their new king. Right after the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the multitudes. They want, and wanting to avoid this uh, messianic uproar that is starting to arise, Jesus quickly withdraws along with his disciples. Verse 23, Jesus resides in his common place of prayer on his own, leaving his disciples. Brothers and sisters, there's a need for us to congregationally pray, communally pray together, right, as a body of Christ. But there's also a need for us to have personal habits that are spiritual and absolutely dedicated to God. We saw this in Daniel just last month, right? We saw the tendency to open that window, get on his knees, and pray three times a day. We're not talking about it legalistically. I'm not telling you to go home, open your windows. My, my windows don't even open. Open your windows, get on your knees, and pray. We're not telling you to do that three times a day. Uh, we're not telling you that that is the regulation of the church. We're telling you that the spiritual habits that should exist in your life should stem from and come out of faith. Why? Christ modeled it for us. People who say, why do we even pray? If it doesn't lead to this or doesn't do that, I don't understand the purpose of prayer. Just look at Jesus and that's enough to know and see that there is clearly a need to pray. At least there's a clear reason to pray. If the Son of God Himself would pray in bodily form, why would we not? It makes no sense. If anyone didn't have to pray through logical and rational thinking of the human mind, it's Jesus. Right? But who prays more than him? We find him consistently in a state of prayer on the night of his arrest, in prayer, on the cross, praying for the forgiveness of those who are murdering him. Figure after figure in scripture, whether it be David, Nehemiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, prayer is a great habit to instill in your life. Not for the sake of legalism or some kind of salvation that arises out of that, but for the purposes of communication with God to maintain a healthy, stable relationship with him that is abundant it is fruitful and deep if you get married and never talk to your wife or husband again what will happen to that relationship is that the marriage you imagine to be an abundant fruitful deep relationship if you have a child and never speak to them what will happen on paper still your child still your partner But is that all you want? Is that all you want with God? Just as long as I go to heaven, I'm okay. I don't see love in that. Okay, I sidetracked. Anyways, getting back. Wanting to avoid this messianic uproar, he withdraws. Okay, so he resides in the common place where he's leaving his, leaves his disciples. He wants to just be alone. He was troubled by the news of John the Baptist's death, as we learned before, as well as in the mode of preparation for his upcoming trip to the Gentile regions. 
you read the Gospel of Matthew, he continues on to the Gentile region and starts his ministry in those areas. And ultimately, his entrance into Jerusalem for his death. Uh, a lot of the Gospels check it this way, um, a little bit differently in the Gospel of John for different purposes. But the synoptics basically begin with Jesus on the outer rims, beginning in sort of Jewish territory, ending up in Gentile territory, and then in Jerusalem. There's this very clear geographical trend or trek, if you will, that Jesus follows. It's almost as if to say, hey, remember how everything began with the Jews and then it's going to reach the Gentiles and it all culminates in this new earth, new heaven and new earth, uh, represented by this physical format of Jerusalem. While Jesus secludes himself in prayer, his disciples are left out in the sea with a great storm amidst great struggle. Much like how he will one day leave them to ascend and intercede for them as they struggle through life as ministers and apostles of the gospel. And in the same sense as Christ does for the church today, he may not be with us physically, but scripture guarantees and promises us in Romans that he is interceding on our behalf at the right hand of God. John Trapp, English Anglican theologian, writes, Whilst the disciples were periling and well nigh perishing, Christ was praying for them. So he still is for us, the right hand of the majesty on high. If you're a disciple on the boat that evening, you might question why this man with so much authority and power is not present with us in our most difficult hour. Why is he not here with us? And that is the same question you can ask right now. Where is this Christ, I believe? Is it so foolish for me to suggest and perhaps prescribe to you a different thought? That he is not as distant as you may think, but rather present with you more than you could ever imagine. Verse 24, disciples had drifted several miles offshore and were caught in a fierce storm. And storms, of course, in scripture are such powerful metaphors of the storms of our own life. Verse 25, the Roman soldiers divided the night into four watches. According to Roman sort of timekeeping here, we're going to go into the four watches. The four watches being 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. The fourth watch would have been 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Okay, so they divided that 12-hour span into threes, right? Um, and we're looking at a 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. time frame. Meaning, these disciples, get this, were battling the storm for over nine hours. Nine hours. And in the midst of this, Jesus just walks to them on the sea. Now, by every other gospel, we see Jesus calming the storm. We see Jesus, you know, obviously we know Jesus is God. So in the Old Testament, Jesus splits seas. Clearly has control over these things. But you must wonder and question, why does he just walk on the water? Is that a solution to the problem? At face value, certainly not. It doesn't resolve the torment of the storm or the danger and the threat of it. Verse 26, the immediate response of the disciples was fear and terror. And I think it's right that they would be in fear and terror because what they saw was something impossible. 
They shouldn't be shocked at this point anyway at miracles by Jesus, but it was quite late in the evening and they probably thought what they were seeing was a deception by an evil spirit. That's why they cry out, this is a ghost. Consider this also, that they would have no technological or even primitive light, light source, whether it be a torch or a flashlight. None exist on or around the boat. This is absolute darkness. As dark as it could be in the midst of a terrible storm, this figure is walking to them. I don't know about you, but I would be terrified in the darkest of nights a man-like figure walking on water is not something you are ecstatic to see, regardless of who the figure is. And so they cry out, this must be a ghost. Ghost in Greek is phantasma, meaning spirit or apparition, something I don't understand, something of another realm. Verse 27, in the midst of chaos, Jesus' words are, it is I, in Greek, ego, a, me. And those words should sound familiar to you, when I put it in the English, direct translation, word for word, transliterated, is I am. Where did we learn that? I am. Very reminiscent of God's voice in the burning bush as he cried out to Moses when he was in a state of fear. This ground is holy. I am who I am. Perhaps this is Jesus' way of saying that the Lord was before them. Hence, there was no need for fear, even though the reality of the storm is acknowledged. Even though the presence of the storm is understood, here am I. I'm with you. I am are two extremely powerful words in Scripture. The ego, amy uh, words are just are prolific throughout Scripture. Not only is a president present in the burning bush. Uh, sequence in Exodus 3 and 4, where we see, of course, the I am who I am statement. But we also see it in the Gospel of John, seven powerful I am statements, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's a way of saying God is with you. Do not fear. Again, to emphasize, the statement is suggesting this. Look beyond your circumstance. Look at who is before you. The human tendency is to look at what is happening in my life. Not who is with me in my life. Right? It's really important when you just switch that question to who, even with your friends, you can do this and it just changes the dynamic of your relationship. If you only strictly look at what is this person doing with me? What is the circumstance that I am with this person? What is the nature of the relationship with this person? If that's your primary question, it's gonna cause a lot of dissonance and tension because we're imperfect creatures. What we do to one another will create a lot of friction. But if you look at who this person is, you'll begin to understand the nature of the person and appreciate the good that is present within that relationship. It's hard to just value someone on the basis of what they do for you. And in fact, that is a terrible way of making friends, right? Rather, look at who. And so when we look at God, what is happening in your life, he acknowledges, I'm sure, is not ideal in a fallen world. 
But I think what he's trying to draw us towards is who he is in light of what is happening in your life. And I use the word light specifically. Why? There is no light in this story. There's no light. The context is important. It's pitch black. There's nothing you can see. But the one thing they do see is Christ walking on the water. Brothers and sisters, if Christ is not that light that you are drawing your sights towards, you are missing who He is. You're missing it. John is emphatic about this in his, in his gospel. One of the I am statements is, I am the light of the world. I hope that makes sense. When I was in some, like, first year university, I had one of the lowest of low moments of my life. Right, like, really terrible. I won't go into detail, but it's, anyways, it was really, like, darkness, so to speak, right? I was reading scripture, 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine, You, O Lord, are my lamp. And you turn my darkness into light. Just jumped out of the page at me, right? And what thought came to my mind immediately was, why a lamp? See, most of us, what we want from God is, let's say this room was dark, or where you are is completely dark. What you want God to do, flip on a switch, turn on all the lights so you can see everything. But if your room was completely dark right now, and if this room was completely dark right now, or if we were in like a cave and it's completely dark, and I gave you a lamp, how much light does that really provide? Does it show you the way out? Does it tell you where to go? It does not. A lamp is providing just enough light for you to feel secure and trust in that light for each and every single step for if I turned on the switch and all the lights went on you would just bolt but like in this story every step must be taken in faith with God in the light that he provides I think that's what God wants not the speed at which you end up at the destination but the means by which you do so does that make sense? I think it's really key that we understand this concept. It's really important that faith is the primary focal point of the Christian walk. It is not ending up at the destination. The ending up at destination thing is guaranteed by Christ. That shouldn't be our reason for being Christian. It should be faith. Right? Faith in God. Faith in Christ. I hope this makes sense. I hope it does. I don't think the focus of this story and the reason that Matthew includes it in his gospel is to tell us, if you believe in Jesus, you can walk on water. I just don't think that's the story. It's to teach us something deeper. Verse 28, Peter says, For it is a bold disciple to test whether or not it really was Jesus. And he requests to this figure that he commands him to come onto the water. And Jesus says, surely, come. P. 
Peter understood that only Jesus could command such a thing and make it happen. So, he does. The same Peter that told Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinner, O Lord, last week when we read about the calling of, of Peter, is now requesting Christ to call him out onto water. Now again, consider, he's a fisherman. He understands the treacherous nature of the water, the sea, and the storm. He understands every dynamic of this, the reality of it. He understands what it means for him to be walking on water. He understands what it means for him to step out of the boat. He would have certainly known the dangers. This is not primitive thinking. This is not stupid Peter ignoring you know, these facts. He understands the entire dynamic of the situation reality, and yet he's takes, he takes that step of faith. Okay? And again, at the word of Christ. D.A. Carson writes on this, What is more natural than for a fisherman who knew and respected dangers of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, to want to follow Jesus in this new demonstration of supernatural power. Abraham walked away from home as God called him. David walked before Goliath. Daniel walked into a furnace and Joshua stepped into the promised land at the word of God. May we all be men and women of faith who take steps of faith in our life. I'm not asking you to take leaps and bounds. I'm not asking you to jump ahead. Just every day when you wake up, just consider it a step of faith. Every day. Just one step. Verse 29, Jesus demonstrates his authority by adhering to Peter's quest and he successfully, successfully walks on the water. Does this shock you? At this point, if you've read the Bible from Genesis to Matthew, it should not. It should not. At least initially, the mir miracle is done and the miraculous is demonstrated. Our entrance into the walk of faith is nothing short of a miracle predicated on Christ's call and Christ's power. Our faith in Him is what allows us even that granted access. Verse 30, Peter is hindered by the wind. So foolish, right? Here's Jesus who called you onto the water and you are literally walking on water and a wind comes. A wind. Something so simple. Something so stupid. Like, wasn't there wind anyway? Like, it's a storm, right? There must have been wind anyway. But it's like, oh, I'm walking on, oh, wait, there's wind. Of all things. And reality hits him. And he starts to think to himself, what is going on here, right? And fear overwhelms. And he sinks. And it's such a powerful metaphor there. Faith to walk. Fear to sink. Fear in this instance overrides faith as they are mutually exclusive, in my opinion. At least in the context of faith walk. When we fear creation over creator, our fear shrinks us. A great moment of faith is followed by a great moment of fear. And in the roller coaster of the Christian walk and life, many times, this is the case in reality. This scene is a great image of the faith walk that Christians are on because the success of our walk is determined by our constant reliance and faith in Christ. God, of course, takes all credit from beginning to end of our salvation, but our maneuvering of faith, life, is sustained by setting our sights on Jesus in faith. This really reminds me of the story and uh, narrative in, New in Numbers 21 in the Old Testament. Bronze serpent, right? 
talked about this a few times. We must look to Jesus like the Israelites were to look at the bronze serpent. What happens is that, of course, when you do so, you are healed of the poison of the venomous snakes, or in our case, of sin. And it's mastery over us. The miracle. This miracle of Peter walking on the water is as is sorry, is not as powerful a miracle as you coming to faith in Christ. Don't be astonished at something so elementary like this. When God splits seas, when God brings plagues on Egypt, when God does all the things that you look at and you go, that's supernatural and that's unbelievable and that's extraordinary, these amazing acts that we see in in the Bible, right? Be astonished instead when a man like Saul, who is killing Christians, who despises Jesus more than any figure he has ever known, comes to faith as he's blinded on the road to Damascus. Be astonished at that. Be astonished at someone like Philip encountering this Ethiopian eunuch and being able to share the gospel of Christ and this eunuch being baptized in faith. Be astonished at multitudes of people in Antioch, in Philippi, in Colossae, in Ephesus coming to faith. Be astonished when the gospel reached Korea a hundred years ago and here we are today. Be astonished at that. When God moves mountains and heavens and earth, what more would you expect from the one who created it? Be instead a marveler of the miracle of faith in the life of any sinner. That is the miracle of Christ that we should be most compelled by. And this is why when we do apologetics and we try to defend our faith, don't defend it with stories of like ridiculous supernatural events. Defend our faith with the miraculous story of you coming to faith. Your testimony. The testimony of others. The testimony and the witness of Christ in the life of believers both past and present. When Paul is sharing his testimony of, and he's sharing witnessing Christ to Gentiles in his ministry, all throughout, like read it, read the book of Acts and read all the other books. When he shares his testimony, he shares his story. How many times do you see Paul talking about the miracle of scales falling from his eyes? How many times do you see him going to the Athenians and saying, Hey, I was on the road to Damascus and this light blinded me on the road and I saw Jesus in the sky and he talked to me. He said I was going to be an instrument and then all of a sudden these scales blinded my eyes and then I went to this dude in like Damascus on the road, straight road and then this guy like prayed for me and then the scales fell from my eyes and then I can see. How many times do you see that? We don't. Not even once. Not even once. If you had a testimony like that, wouldn't you share that with the world? <laughs> right? Hey, I was on the road to Toronto, and then all of a sudden, on my way from Minnesota to Toronto, like I was blinded on the highway 401. And then I saw Jesus in the sky. And then I was blind, and then I could see again. No. You know what his testimony is? I was once a slave to sin. 
Christ found me. And his life and death and resurrection and the work of Christ, his atoning work on the cross, saved me. That is the testimony of every believer. That is what astonishes me in Scripture. That's what compelled me. Verse 31, Jesus, however, picks him up and identifies the issue to be, hey, you're a little lack of faith there, Peter. Right? Stop doubting. Brothers and sisters, the saved are saved. See, the beauty of, I think, sovereign God theology is this. If you're saved, you're saved. And if you're not, you're not. There is a clear distinction in line between those two things. So in other words, like this, you can't save yourself, which means you can't fall away by yourself. See, a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to lose faith. I'm going to lose faith. I say, well, you can't really lose something that you never really got on your own anyway. Right? It's just given. Saved or saved. Even from our greatest failures. Greatest failures. Now that's not to say go out and seek failures, right? Paul obviously addressed that in Romans 7. You know, the gift of grace and the gift of Christ is not a license to sin. But even in the greatest moments of our failure, it should help you to understand and realize the beauty of the grace of God, mercy of Christ on the cross. Jesus in Matthew 11 preached for the weary to come to him, and here Peter finds rest in Christ as he is picked up out of that water. Jesus simply calls Peter, calls to Peter and calls him little faith. He asks, why'd you doubt? <laughs> as if he doesn't know, but he asks anyway. Not so much a rebuke, but a gentle reminder. Have faith, for I am God. A reminder to remember who Jesus is. He says, if you know who I am, why doubt? Brothers and sisters, why do we doubt? Because we get distracted with things that are not Jesus. Right? The things that are not Jesus distracts us from Jesus. Right? All the time. Spurgeon asks this question to, to believers today. He asks, You do believe, and if you believe, why doubt? If faith, why little faith? And if you doubt, why believe? And if you believe, why doubt? I love that. It's a Spurgeon just rambling on. For those in doubt of the faith, be consistent and be rational. Be courageous. Same doubts and questions you have about God. If you start applying those same, that same line of thinking to other worldviews, you will quickly run into problems. Any man-made worldview and perspective has major holes. Major holes. Do not follow Christ blindly. I, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying like having faith has this unfortunate connotation with it that it's just like oh you believe no matter what and it's like forget all the facts right i don't think so i don't think following christ is some sort of blind like wandering and you just end up at the prize of christ right there's a rationality behind it there's a consistency to it there's a wisdom 
fallen Christ. Doubt literally is defined to be divided in two. So we must be single-mindedly focused on Christ instead of being divided in two. Single-mindedly focused on Christ. Final two verses, 32 to 33. The wind ceases as they enter the boat, signaling the obedience to Christ, the obedience of the winds to Christ. You know, one could ask the question, why didn't you just do that from the beginning? <laughs> why do you have to create this storm and set up this whole thing? All disciples worship Jesus for the first time and only time with the title Son of God or Godson. Moment of revelation for these men and for us today as we read this narrative. Brothers and sisters, I conclude with this. We all doubt, we all fear. But that doesn't mean that we are without faith. Um, Having doubts and having fears in your walk with God is not a sign that you are not a believer. It's not... it, It could be problematic in our walk with God because we're human and we're fragile and we're going to be tormented by these things, right? But it's not an indicator that, oh, faith is not present here, right? It could be, right? It could be the reality that maybe you have disingenuine faith, and that's why these doubts and fears are overwhelming you. Or you could have genuine faith, and you can still have doubts and fears. In fact, when you read scripture, I don't think you see any, any, any uh, New Testament figure without doubts and fears. Right? I think it's present in all of them. Even in Paul, just read Romans 7, right? I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I do do and I should do and do this and do that and whatever. And he's just tormented by these things. Martin Luther in the Reformation was tormented by the inner reality of his sinful nature. And he's saying, did you just create me to sin and go to hell? Like, what's the point here, right? They're not valid reasons for a relation to be considered inadequate or invalid. You know, work out those things and understand and trust in God to help you to resolve those doubts and those fears that are existent within us. It is a reality of the one who is walking in faith. Right? But here's the sign that will help you right, understand um, genuine faith from dis- like sort of differentiate those two, two things in, in scripture, okay? Uh, it's worded like this in the Gospels. For example, the Gospel of John, it would be worded as, those who abide in Christ, he will abide in us, right? In the other Gospels, they will word it something like this, a good tree will bear good fruit. And then in Paul, he will sort of reword those things again for example, in Galatians 5, as the fruits of the Holy Spirit that are present in the world, in the one who is walking with the Spirit. So there are signs that we can point to and look to and try to understand, right? To see the nature of our faith. But the existence of doubt and fear is not listed anywhere in Scripture as a sign that you don't have faith. Look what Jesus just said. Why do you have little faith? Why did you doubt? He didn't say, oh, you doubted. I guess you don't have faith. (laughs) Right? That's not what he says. He says, he identifies the doubt. He identifies the fear. And he says, faith, have faith. Right? 
So these are not valid reasons for us to question the nature of faith, the genuine reality of faith in our lives. We should question those things in a healthy way, but the presence of doubt and fear should not overwhelm you. Otherwise, you will find making friends or even being married basically impossible, right? If, you're, if, you had, if you got married, you think you're just going to be like, oh, you know, I signed the paper, got a ring. I guess I never have to worry about our relationship again. In, sure, in a sense, yes. But there are going to be moments of fear, moments of doubt, moments of questioning, even after marriage, right? No one walks into marriage thinking like, oh, this is sealed, done, you know, don't have to worry about this anymore. This relationship, it'll never, it'll never waver. And the month goes by. And you have a kid, and then it's just like, of course it's going to waver, right? We need to understand that's the nature of human heart and the tendency of our heart in the context of a relationship. That those things will be present and existent. One might ask the question, why doesn't God just provide reason for us not to doubt, not to have fear? Because that doesn't set up the canvas for faith. We need to realize that we are and will always be doubters and fearful people because of our sin. The great news is that it is not the amount of faith that saves us, but rather the object of our faith. Remember when Jesus says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move mountains? Right? Have you ever seen anyone move a mountain? No one moves mountains, okay? That's not the point. There's more to that text, but I won't go into it. But, But what does that tell you? It's the object of our faith that is the solution to the greatest problem of our life. Not us and the amount of faith that we project onto God. And so, we don't measure faith by size, but by where or in whom we place it. So brothers and sisters, that's my challenge for you this day. In light of the gospel, in light of all that it teaches and provides for us in our life, all that Christ has done for us in his atoning work on the cross for our sins and for all sinners who believe, where and in whom will you place your faith? Let's pray together and reflect on what we've learned today.